Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Smile Actives is a safe and affordable alternative to expensive whitening procedures. You simply add Smile Actives gel to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth, making it the easiest teeth whitening solution out there. In a clinical trial, Smile Actives users reported up to five shades whiter on average, all within seven days. No change to your routine, no extra time. Right now, they are running a buy one, get one offer. Hurry to smileactives.com iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that gives you the secret history and little-known fascinating facts about your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. My name is Jordan Runtog. And my name is Alex Heigl. Heigl, what are we talking about today? And this week, with the fastidious attention to detail of a boy who would walk around high school with his bow tie every day. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about Wes Anderson. I am so sorry. I don't know if Wes Anderson actually walked around high school with a bow tie, but... Did you? No, I was more into corduroy jackets, also like Wes Anderson. I was more of a cravat guy. <laughs> no, I haven't been a cravat guy. I did, wanna, I did spend a year doing the RIP, the Peter Bogdanovich bandana thing. Anyway... Wes Anderson, baby, 20 years of Royal Tenenbaums, let's go, one of the most influential movies on the past two decades of pop culture, and I get jazzed about this movie the way people do like Rocky IV, I love this overly precious, mannered, twee, pseudo-JD Salinger, mid-century American white people problems, I love it, just give it to me, I'm num 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 num. Bing bong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Strap in. I'm getting way too excited about Royal Tenenbaums. I don't know. This movie's great. I'm not a movie critic. I'm not going to talk about this movie's influence. I just think it's a truly perfect thing. It's like Rushmore. It's just a great start to finish. It's great collaborative. It's such a great cast. And I don't know about how you feel about Gene Hackman, Jordan, but Gene Hackman is one of my favorite of that middle era of Hollywood. Like, I dearly love French Connection. I dearly love Scarecrow. Oh, yeah. The, con- the conversation. Poseidon like, Adventure. Some- yeah. So, like, having this be such an appropriate uh, swan song for him, we're not going to talk about Welcome to Mooseport. <laughs> 
his his actual last movie. His actual swung son. I, I, in my mind, I really thought that World Tenenbaums was his last movie, and then I actually looked it up, and I was horrified. I thought somebody had hacked his Wikipedia account and made Welcome to Mooseport his last movie, but it really was. That was his final on-screen appearance. Uh, well, we're not going to dwell on that. We're going to focus on happier times. Uh, not really, Heigl. We're going to talk about how Gene Hackman didn't enjoy himself on the set and made sure to tell Wes Anderson at pretty much every available opportunity. We'll also talk about Anderson's dictatorial approach to fashion, the time Angelica Houston's hair caught on fire in the middle of a scene, and when Mordecai the Falcon was held for ransom by a random New Jersey resident. But yes, of course, there are some happier moments, too, like the time Gwyneth Paltrow took Paul McCartney out on a bowling date, which sounds like my personal fantasy, and also how the film inspired elements of the sitcom 30 Rock, but also almost killed the show Arrested Development. And of course, there's also quite a bit in here for you typeface nerds as well, so keep an ear out for that. So without further ado, here is everything you didn't know about the Royal Tenenbaums. Royal Tenenbaums, baby! (laughs) All right, how did Royal Tenenbaums get its start? Jordan, hit me. So it's after Rushmore and... Owen Wilson, uh, who's Wes Anderson's uh, writing partner, as well as his frequent on-screen running buddy, uh, suggested that Wes write a screenplay about his parents' divorce. So that was the jumping off point, but the more Wes Anderson wrote, the less he said the family resembled his own family. And as we'll talk about in a moment, that's probably for the best. Though they were both collaborators, Owen Wilson had become much more in demand (laughs) as an actor since Rushmore, and as a result... Wes Anderson really took the lead on the writing on this more than he'd had in the past. Their relationship had been a lot more collaborative before that. Can you imagine Wes Anderson writes up Owen Wilson and he's like, hey man, I've been revisiting that idea about like, you know, writing a screenplay about my parents' divorce and he's like talking through it and Owen Wilson's on the phone. He's like, "Mm, I gotta go shoot Anaconda. That was a bad Owen Wilson. It'll get better as I go. Don't worry. I'm gonna get about an hour to ease into it. But yeah, he shot uh, Anaconda starring Ice Cube and John Voight and, you know, probably did some other stuff. But uh, I really just wanted to stress that Owen Wilson was in Anaconda and (laughs) Wes Anderson presumably at some point was left on red because because Owen Wilson was off shooting Anaconda with Ice-T and Jennifer Lopez. So Wes Anderson delves into his parents' divorce alone yeah. at the recommendation of his friend and writing partner, Owen Wilson. Uh, but it, it becomes, as he, as he goes further down the, uh, the process of writing it, he realizes that it's you know not really about his own family, but instead about this fictitious group of preternaturally gifted children who then grow up and deal with no longer being precocious I mean, it's a movie about gifted kid syndrome, you know, and I hate to use that because it's such a Twitter meme at this point, but it's like, it's just a movie about gifted kids becoming like sad adults. So it's great if you identify as either one of those things. Um, Like a lot of Wes Anderson stuff, the laundry list of that he has attributed to going into this movie is insane. So we're just going to do it as a lightning round. He imagined, supposedly, the story that would later become the film while listening to Maurice Ravel's String Quartet in F, performed by the Britain Quartet. Which of course is, he did. Yeah, of course he did. I mean, what? here's the thing about Wes Anderson. He's like, he could have come up with this story while listening to Slayer or, like, Fog Hat, and he would lie to you because he has his image to maintain. So, you know, like, Grand Funk Railroad, like, he was just listening to, like, American Band on repeat. 
with like a trucker hat, but then he's still gonna lie to you and give you some kind of highfalutin. Yeah, Chumbawamba was a major uh, influence. In <laughs> yeah, Royal Tenenbaums. This is just the tip of the hat. So we're like I said, we're gonna lightning round it. So first up, we have Frank Capra's 1938 adaptation of "You Can't Take It With You." Then we go, we skip forward four years for Orson Welles' 1942 film, The Magnificent Ambersons, uh, which was probably one of the biggest influences of all the laundry list of influences that Wes Anderson has cited, because it's about this kind of gifted, slightly mythical family. And then we move forward about eight years, because we're doing this chronologically, because why not? We're looking at Jean-Pierre Melville's Les Enfants Terribles from 1950, which is a specific inspiration for the character of Richie and Margot. And we're not going to do, we're not going to get super granular on the plot here. We're assuming that you've watched this movie. So spoilers also, I guess we have to say that. The next influence we have, which is one of the more obvious ones to my mind, it's where I come at these characters from, is Franny and Zoe, which is uh, Salinger from 1961, which has a lot of this like preternaturally smart and precocious children stuff, along with a character named Tannenbaum. So that seems kind of obvious. Uh, Next up. What do we got, Jordan? Uh, this one's my favorite. Uh, E.L. Cronenberg's 1967 book from the mixed-up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankenweiler, the great kids book. Uh, in that book, the kids run away and live in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, which obviously inspires the story of Richie and Margot hiding out in the museum overnight. Four years later, we've got works of French director Louis Malle, including Murmur of the Heart from 1971 and a, a movie from eight years previous called The Fire Within. The latter of that film contains a line translated as I'm going to kill myself tomorrow, which you may remember a bearded Luke Wilson intoning into the mirror set to the ungodly harrowing strains of Needle in the Hay. While we're talking about films from 1971, we have Francois Truffaut's Two English Girls, which is also a film that you see this visual device of multiple book covers sort of meticulously used to uh, fill up the frame of the film. And Two kind of not specifically tied to movies, but two personalities really will continue to inspire the some characters. Oh yeah, the uh, the famous neurologist Oliver Sacks, who is the man behind the Robin Williams movie Awakenings, and he wrote the the man who mistook his wife for a hat and all these great, really interesting books about the human mind. He inspired Bill Murray's character, and he looks just like him. He'd wear turtlenecks yeah. and had a big bushy beard and these round glasses. Yep. So it's definitely a nod to Oliver Sacks. And uh, who else we got? Cormac McCarthy, baby. Yeah, Cormac McCarthy is the model for the brief segment of Owen Wilson's writing that we actually hear from his Custer novel, which can I just read that? Yes, please. I want to read this entire quote. I mean, I've, as someone who once had the um, Twitter handle Cormac McCartney, like I'm a huge Cormac McCarthy fan. So this writing is so damn funny to me. It is so pitch perfect. He's doing a reading of his book, and <laughs> the passage is. The crickets and the rust beetles scuttled among the nettles of the sage thicket. Vamanos, amigos, he whispered, and threw the busted leather flint craw over the loose weave of the saddlecock, and they rode on in the friskillating dusklight. That is pitch perfect Cormac McCarthy parody. I love it so much. Now that we've gotten dispensed with the uh, the fictional influences on the book, let's move into some queasier territory, Jordan. Yes, apparently Wes Anderson really had a childhood friend who was actually in love with his own sister. Like, not his adopted Ugh. sister, but his actual sister. Um, yeah. Um, now, that, now that we've lived through Game of Thrones, people forget. <laughs> <laughs> no, people don't forget. Incest is still a weird thing. 
to, to put in a movie. People don't forget. Game of Thrones didn't normalize that. Anyway, now we get into casting. I mean, I spoke at length and loudly about the cast for this movie, which is perfect. But the linchpin of the whole thing is Gene Hackman. He's so funny. Uh, he's just truly perfect. And Anderson wrote this with Gene Hackman in mind. And getting him to sign on to this movie was such a Herculean task. And I love every bit of it. He says he wrote the role. He told Vulture in 2013 that he wrote the role of Earl Tenenbaum for Gene Hackman against Hackman's wishes. That's a direct quote. Because when he met Hackman for, to talk about it, Gene said to him, I don't like it when people write for me because you don't know me and I don't want what you think is me. <laughs> so perhaps obviously after hearing that, Anderson added in this 2013 interview that Hackman was very difficult to sign. The money was too low. The um, size of the cast meant that everyone had to work for scale, which not very much money for 60 days of shooting that he is a main character and alec baldwin jokes i think around that same in that same round table that hackman's agent once told him that gene doesn't even open his eyes for less than three million (laughs) but anderson credits that same agent with convincing him to take the role and in some other truly great bits of almost casting news gene wilder and michael kane were supposedly alternate picks for royal which I don't try to indulge in too much alternate casting history, but those both also would have been incredible. Um, And Gene Hackman has also said in interviews that he was a little hesitant to accept the part because he felt there was a little... um, It reflected on times in his life that he had sort of behaved in similar ways to his family, and he didn't want to see that up on screen. So he actually went and talked to his family about this part and say, hey, would this cut a little too close to the bone? Would this feel a little too much like our own lives? Should I not do this? And they agreed that he would accept the part. But um, having midwifed this role through fire and blood, Game of Thrones reference too, Gene Hackman gets to the set and it is not a light, it is not a bed of roses. Yeah, I mean, as you can probably imagine, giving the whole lead up to this, he was a bit prickly to work with on the set. And I guess he knew that this was getting towards the end of his career, and he signed on to this movie under the promise from Wes Anderson that, you know, this would be a fun and relaxing experience. (laughs) And I I guess um, Gene did not find it fun or relaxing, and there was a point, I guess, when he actually just shouted at Wes on the set, Hey, Wes, you said this was supposed to be fun and relaxing for me. Well, I'm not having fun. (laughs) (laughs) And this was just one of many instances of Gene Hackman apparently just berating and verbally abusing uh, Wes on the set. According to Angelica Houston, there was a moment when Gene told Wes to, quote, pull up your pants and act like a man. I mean, it's just like having Popeye Doyle. (laughs) It's like having Popeye Doyle on your set, like screaming at you. That that sounds terrifying. The fact that Wes could not make the movie making experience fun for Gene Hackman really, (laughs) really hurt him, especially because he knew that Gene was like, you know, one of his last roles and he really wanted to make it something personal failure for him. But I guess the cast really rallied around Wes. Bill Murray would show up on days when he wasn't required on the set to basically act as like a buffer and protector for Wes from Gene. And uh, Angelica Houston was saying about how the scene when uh, when yeah. Boyle confronts her on the street after not seeing her for all those years and telling her that he's dying and then walks it back and says he's not dying and she slaps him. She says that she slapped him for real. And like... She saw the imprint of her hand on his cheek. Yeah. <laughs> And she knew that she really went too far because he, I guess when he was reading the script, he felt really uncomfortable at saying 
damn. And when she smacked him, he said, damn. And it like, he wasn't acting. He just was actually reacting to getting the smackdown from Angelica. And she was like, oh God, you know, he's going to be <laughs> furious Whoops. now. Yeah. So he was apparently a not exactly welcomed presence on the set. But, But, uh, you know, I think he did maybe come away with it a little positively because Wes Anderson asked his brother Eric to sketch out designs for the family. And one of which he sent to Hackman, like a sketch of him as royal. And he later asked if he could borrow it. And uh, Hackman either had lost it by that point or didn't want to give it back. I like to believe he didn't want to give it back. It's like a nice memory for him. But, you know, while we're talking about lightning round fun facts, Wes's brother Eric does all of young Richie's drawings in the film. And young Richie is incidentally played by John Turturro's son, Amadeo. So if you want to tweet us about this episode, please use the hashtag Amadeo Turturro. Uh, We'll come back to that later on. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other, as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Can I give you a real incentive to lean into your decision to start working out and eating better? I'm Carl, co-founder of Body. That's B-O-D-I. And right now, if you sign up for a one-year subscription to Body, I want to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'll give you 65% off. Look, I know it's not easy to get fit and lose weight, especially if you're trying to figure it out by yourself. But we make it simple. Just follow a program for 20 to 30 minutes day by day and lose 5 to 10 pounds a month. We have over 120 programs that have been tested and proven to work, and almost 300,000 five-star reviews in the App Store to prove it. Body also has complete eating plans and thousands of healthy, delicious recipes. So stop guessing and start seeing results with Body, and I'll give you 65% off your annual membership right now so you save big on the app that CNN underscored named Best Fitness App. So don't wait. Sign up for a year of Body and save 65%. Just go to Body.com. That's Body with an I.com. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Smile Actives is a safe and affordable alternative to expensive whitening procedures. You simply add Smile Actives gel to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth, making it the easiest teeth whitening solution out there. In a clinical trial, Smile Actives users reported up to five shades whiter on average, all within seven days. No change to your routine, no extra time. Right now, they are running a buy one, get one offer. Hurry to smileactives.com slash iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling.
And I, you know, I'd mentioned about what it would be like to have Popeye Doyle on the set of your unbearably twee, dialogue-driven film screaming at you that he wasn't having fun. <laughs> and to pull up your pants. <laughs> and to pull up your pants and act like a man. Wes Anderson actually was not above sticking in uh, references to his star's other more famous films into the Royal Tenenbaum. So, Jordan, what are those? Uh, there's a nod, of course, to uh, the French Connection. The you know, French Connection has one of the greatest car chases in cinematic history. Uh, Wes Anderson pays tribute to that when uh, Royal takes Chaz's children, Ari and Uzi, to go go-karting. And they're driving under this, like, almost looks like a subway I think it's one of the elevated, it's one of the standing elevated tracks. And that original scene is stunt driver Bill Hickman tearing ass around Brooklyn for real. They did not obtain a permit. It's oh, yeah, freaking, they crashed into a real car. In, yeah. It's in, a, this it's is the a, French connection, by the way. Not Wes yeah, Anderson not, did not this didn't happen have a car accident. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that car chase in the middle really livened up the whole dialogue heavy thing. <laughs> but that's not the only tribute to another star's work in there. Wes Anderson loved Danny Glover, which I think is adorable. Who doesn't? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Who doesn't? But in Witness, in the Harrison Ford crime movie, Glover's character shoots Ford and Ford's response is, I know you, asshole, which is, you know, you'll remember Hackman says to Owen Wilson's character at one point, it's when he's escaping out the window, he looks down and says, I know you, asshole. Um, but, you know, there is a very uncomfortable moment Ooh, in the film yeah. between Gene Hackman and Danny Glover's characters. And, you know, Jordan, do you want to talk us through this one? <sighs> sure. Uh, <laughs> there's a scene when Gene calls Danny Glover Coltrane as a slur. And uh, apparently there was a long discussion, not about whether or not to use that slur at all. But uh, I guess Hackman wanted to change the line to Satchmo. <laughs> As in Louis Armstrong. Uh, but I guess Danny Glover agreed with Wes Anderson that Coltrane worked better as a slur, which... I uh, mean, the character uh, is supposed to be an asshole. Like, it's supposed to be... I understand why it's in there. It makes sense from, like, an art point of view. But just imagining, like, two white guys sitting there, like, earnestly discussing with Danny Glover which slur that they would rather use on him is... God, that's so cringe. <laughs> but another fun fact about Danny Glover. That's right. His look on the film was modeled after UN Secretary General Kofi Annan. Apparently, this was Wes Anderson's idea after uh, Danny Glover, who apparently knows Kofi personally, introduced Wes Anderson to him at a UN event. That's incredible. Hi, I'm Danny Glover. This is my friend, UN Secretary General Kofi Annan. Please meet this <laughs> slight corduroy clad man who is making a dumb movie. Yeah. Not that World Tenenbaums is dumb, just on the scope of things that Kofi Annan has to deal with during the day. Uh, where are we at? Okay. Angelica Houston, incredible in this. I mean, she's incredible in everything. Whatever. I don't need to talk about how An Angelica Houston is amazing. But Jordan, why don't you talk us through a little bit of the stuff that Wes Anderson was working through with Angelica Houston? So it sounds like Wes Anderson was working out some kind of mommy issues in the character that he wrote for Angelica Houston. And he wrote it specifically for Angelica. But there was a weird moment during shooting when um, I guess Wes gave Angelica multiple photographs of his mom, who, like Ethelene, was an archaeologist. And I think he gave her one of uh, like a locket that his mom used to wear. And finally, Angelica Houston just asked him, like, Wes, am I playing your mother? And he said no, but I guess that the glasses Ethelene wears in the film are actually his mother's glasses. So, uh, Wes, am I playing your mother? No, but put on these glasses and don't ask further questions. 
Yeah, that, there's uh, there's kind of a lot to unpack there, but uh, but moving right <laughs> along, apparently in the scene when uh, they're filming Margot's birthday and sort of the opening montage, and Angelica Houston's carrying in a cake with candles on it while shooting that film, uh, an errant candle set her uh, hair on fire. Mm-hmm. And uh, the actor who played Pagoda had to like think quickly and just, I think he like, did, did he like throw water on her or something? I forget. He might have had like a Dixie cup. I don't know, but quick shout out to Pagoda, Kumar Palana. He's part of the Wes Anderson rap. You know, he's a bit part in most of the movies. And apparently Palana used to work at Anderson's favorite coffee shop in Dallas. So he brought him with him to the big time, baby. That's how he met Pagoda? Yeah. And that's, and he went on to later save Angelica Houston's hair. So... <laughs> That's a nice arc. Well, speaking of uh, body parts and other parts of the body that got maimed in the production of Royal Tenenbaums, talk about Margot's wooden finger. Well, there's a lot of hand trauma in Royal Tenenbaums. You know, Margot has this wooden finger that she's like always tapping on hard surfaces to annoy people, I guess. But it's it was supposed to have been a, a thing from Rushmore. That was originally intended for... Um, Sarah Tanaka's character, Margaret Yang in Rushmore, which she was supposed to have lost in a science experiment, supposed to go into her character rather than a wood chopping accident, which incidentally is how Jerry Garcia lost one of his fingertips, which derailed him from his career as a bluegrass banjo player. I'm not making that up. And then while we're on the topic of hand trauma in <laughs> in the world of are, are hands Wes Anderson's like feet? For, oh, maybe. For hands, Tarantino. Hands and moms, baby. The BB gun incident in the film is an oft-mentioned part of the film's legacy. Owen Wilson shot his brother, Andrew, in the hand with a BB gun while they were kids. And um, in the movie, the shot of Chaz showing his father the BB that's lodged in his hand, like just under his skin and moving it around. That is uh, Owen Wilson's brother's Andrew. That's his real hand. And fun fact, Andrew Wilson plays the farmer who accidentally chops off Margot's finger. Um, He's also in the movie when he serves as an announcer for one of my other favorite scenes in the movies, which is when Richie has his breakdown mid-tennis. On the tennis court. Uh, It's so perfect. He's taking off his shoes and one of his socks, and actually, Jim, I think he's crying. That's Wes, like Anderson. Wes Anderson's the other yep. announcer, Wes right? Anderson yeah. and Andrew Wilson. And you know what? We're still not done talking about hands <laughs> because <laughs> just like you know, yeah, I don't think I realized this. I did. Wes Anderson, thing for hands here. So the the film opens with the book being borrowed from the library, um, and that is Wes Anderson's hand stamping the library card. Another big part of this film as with all of Wes Anderson's films, is the music. So, Jordan, let's talk a little bit about the music of the Royal Tenenbaums. To me, one of the biggest, you know, most iconic music moments of the whole movie is when uh, the adult Margot steps off the bus and Richie's there to meet her as Nico's These Days is playing. And I guess that whole audiovisual combo had been in Wes Anderson's head for years, long before he had this movie in mind. He just knew that this song these days would just fit with the image of somebody walking off a bus. You know, he didn't know who. He wasn't even sure if it was a bus, but something about somebody arriving with this song playing. He later said in an interview, but the thing I didn't know about was the expression on her face, which is the thing I think that makes it work. Apparently, weirdly, Margot's appearance was modeled on Nico with her, you know, her, her eye makeup and probably her sadness too. Um, (laughs) Gwyneth Paltrow said that shooting that scene when she's stepping off the bus was one of her favorite scenes she's ever done. Apparently her late father, Bruce Paltrow, was visiting the set that day, which, you know, really, you know, made it special for her. And, and, um, 
She later said in an interview, I really hate, hate seeing myself in a movie. That's kind of like the only scene that I can watch myself, like of my whole career, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's a good scene. It's a, I mean, it's a great it's, scene. The best part is Jackson Brown, who wrote the song these days and played guitar on the song in the movie, he forgotten that he'd given permission for the song to be used in the film until he just went to go see it. Um, <laughs> like, because, you know, he said, he later explains, like, you know, you get these things in the mail that you sign off on, you don't really know what they're talking about, and you just kind of, like, give your permission, and it just sort of goes off, and you forget about it. And he said, you're sitting in the movie theater, and there's this great moment when Gwyneth Paltrow's coming out of the bus or something, and I'm thinking to myself, I used to play guitar just like that. And then the voice comes on and it's Nico singing these days. And then he puts it together and realized, oh my God, it's him, which is... Uh, <laughs> what a too. bizarre moment. But um, speaking of music and music permission and licensing and all that, I guess Wes Anderson put Gwyneth Paltrow on uh, Beatles song duty, trying to uh, track down and schmooze Paul McCartney to try to get the Beatles version of Hey Jude for the picture. And I guess she took him out bowling. And uh, I, I think they showed him a rough cut of the film too, which she apparently loved. But for some reason, they weren't able to get the rights to the Beatles originals, which Paul McCartney famously doesn't own. And that's a discussion for another day. It'll get me very heated. But in any event, the rights holders for the Beatles songs, which I think at that stage still included Michael Jackson, they either refused to let Wes Anderson use the songs or maybe they wanted too much money. Uh, they wound up having to use the orchestrated version of the song for the the opening scene instead of the uh, the Beatles' original cut. But I guess some of the early cuts that played at like the New York Film Festival contained a couple Beatles songs that they ultimately had to remove because you know they couldn't get the rights for a film that has so many moments that are so tight. You think of it as something that like arrived fully formed, which like the Nico scene, but it closes with that the Van Morrison song mm. and, and the the like clavinet intro to that song is so like whimsical and so like perfect for the moment. It's I don't know the demo version of I'm looking through you that would have gone that would have gone through there. You do though probably I think it, oh I no I do. It's on the uh, anthology too. I just think it would have been distracting having the Beatles, like yeah. these songs. I mean, especially if they were going to open the movie with the original version of Hey Jude. Yeah. I, that seems distracting, but maybe it just would have been so jarring because I'm so not used to hearing Beatles songs in a, in a you know, sure. Hollywood movie style setting. Almost like when yeah. they used Tomorrow Never Knows in Mad Men, which I remember there was a big thing about how, you know, it was the first time an actual Beatles track had been used in oh, like right. a, a produced, you know, it wasn't like a documentary, but like a, you know, a drama. It was powerful because you're so not used to seeing those songs yeah. in that setting. So who knows? It might have worked out really great. But um, but I think the version that's in there is Mark Mother Mark Mothersbaugh had done the arrangements. The Hey for Jude that. version? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's credited to the Mutato Musica Orchestra, but it is orchestrated by Mark Mothersbaugh, who does other parts of the score as well. Mark Mothersbaugh, of course, from Devo, has done so much with Wes Anderson. His stuff on Life Aquatic is really good, too. I love the little, like, Casio keyboard stuff that plays whenever they're going around. Yeah. Anyway, so we've talked a lot about how great the music cues are in this film, but there is a darker side to some of the musical choices that Anderson made. Yeah, there's a, a really kind of eerie, uh, extremely upsetting coincidence in the bathroom scene where Richie cuts his, his hair and beard and eventually his wrists. The music playing is Needle in the Hay by Elliot Smith. 
I guess Elliot Smith was supposed to cover Hey Jude for the opening also. And that was a, an idea that they had. But Wes Anderson later said that he wasn't in a great mental or physical space. And just a few years after Royal Tenenbaums came out, Elliot Smith committed suicide through self-inflicted stab wounds. I think while his girlfriend was in the shower, I, I thought there was some bathroom yeah, related. Yeah, she was in the apartment. She was in the apartment yeah, with him. Yeah, there was some bathroom related component in there too i thought but it's eerie to hear that song for that scene when when richie is is cutting his wrist knowing i couldn't listen to that song for a while that was actually the first place i heard elliot smith because i grew up in not in central pennsylvania i didn't really grow up somewhere where people were throwing elliot smith around as a musical reference but that was like the first place i heard elliot smith and he was a huge beatles fan there's versions of him doing like because oh yeah it's beautiful i i also missed goodwill hunting as a child so i didn't hear like say yes or some of the other soundtracks to or uh, miss misery so i had only ever heard this song and it just like bowled me away i can't imagine hey jude again like a lot of this other stuff i can't imagine a cover of hey jude by elliot smith that wouldn't feel funereal. yeah 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 like jesus um, but that's not even the only suicide connection to the music in this movie. Uh, yes, the song playing when Richie returns to the Tenenbaum house is by Nick Drake, who's believed to have died by suicide in 1974. Um, he took an overdose of medication prescribed to help him with his depression. And there's some debate about whether or not he intentionally took his own life. There's this amazing BBC documentary you can find on YouTube called A Skin Too Few. And they speak to Nick Drake's sister and others close to him, and they all sort of speculate on whether or not he intentionally took an overdose of his medication. And his producer used a phrase I'll never forget. He said he preferred to imagine Nick making a last desperate lunge towards life by taking an excess of his medication designed to help him rather than a calculated surrender to death. That's just a phrase that always stuck with me. Um, having said all that, I'm completely blanking on what song they used. What Nick Drake song did they use in the Royal Tenenbaums? It's either Pink Moon or Fly. Yeah, it's Fly. Right around, yeah, Pink Moon was in the Volkswagen right. commercial right around the same time. I think that Nick Drake Estate was licensing a bunch of stuff around this time because Pink Moon had famously been in a Volkswagen commercial that got people up in arms back when that was a thing people cared about. Well, did it get people up in I thought in my, I, I read the 33 and a third book on, uh, oh, go ahead. we're going into serious nerdery here, uh, yeah. on Pink Moon. And I thought that was like the thing that brought Nick Drake to prominence was that song being in the Volkswagen oh. commercial because he really outside of I think some N- nerds <laughs> right I mean he, he was not really well known I mean I could be wrong but I thought yeah. I remember that being you know a major point in that in that 33 and a third book and you know if you disagree with us with any of our with any of my pitches about alternate music please feel free to tweet at the podcast using the hashtag Amadeo Tuturo <laughs> and we will be sure to engage in a conversation with you about that now back into the province of whimsy and away from the province of crushing depression that is the other hallmark of wes anderson's work let's talk about some of the fastidious awesome fashions of the film oh yeah i mean margo's outfit i feel like one out of every four of my classmates in high school dressed up as margo at some point you know for <laughs> halloween during my high school experience i mean her look is just so cool so i mean it's like the prototypical hipster millennial look yeah. uh, i mean the whole the whole production and look of the film is you know it's designed to be era ambiguous and really 
it's supposed to be, you notice that the characters as grownups are wearing, in some cases, the identical looks that they're wearing as kids, because the whole idea was to telegraph this sense of arrested development. And they wanted to, to cling on to the era when they were at their best. So, I mean, you know, Margot in the beginning of the movie, she's 12 years old and wearing a mink coat and a tennis dress. And later on, she's wearing the exact same thing. And, you know, you, you could see it two ways. You could see it as her knowing who she was at an early age, that whole, like, you know, precocious kid, child genius thing, or just they're all in a state of perpetual arrested development. But uh, costume designer Karen Patch got Margot's famous mink coat design from uh, a, a kind of obscure Peter Sellers movie from 1964 called The World of Henry Orient. Peter Sellers plays this uh, concert pianist, and these two teen girls are, like, obsessed with him in, like, Beatlemania style, but instead of, like, four guys playing rock and roll. It's this like Liberace style concept. <laughs> it's weird, but it's, it's really funny. Yeah. Uh, and one of the teen girls runs away and, and is dressed in this, this mink coat. So where did the coats come from? They were actually uh, custom made for the film by Fendi. I actually am not familiar with Fendi. Can you tell me a little more about Fendi? I have no idea what Fendi is. Gucci, 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 Fendi, Fendi, Prada. Basic bitches wear that shit so I don't even want to. Don't you remember that song? I, I Creation? No. Uh, uh, Fendi's is, what? Fendi's I was, in, I was in my room listening to Simon and Garfunkel whenever that <laughs> came out. What, what? I I don't even know who that is. Oh, that rapper, Creation? No. Uh, she, oh, she, okay. You know what? Yes. I currently residing in the Where Are They Now files. So Fendi, which is an Italian company formed in 1925 and known for its use of uh, fur and fur goods and leathers, they made two of these, one for Gwyneth Paltrow and one for young Margot. Custom made for the film. They got to use them for six months and then probably sent them back because it was like a quarter of the film's budget. Karen Patch also made the Lacoste dress in the film that uh, Margot wears from scratch because the company apparently only made solid color dresses, not striped. So she basically just asked them for... What does fabric come in? A bolt? Bolt, yeah. Bolts. Yeah, bolts of fabric and just stitched it. But then they also had to get permission from the company to put the alligator logo on there because it was not an official product and they, I guess... Lacoste is apparently very touchy about protecting its brand. But you know what? We're just warming up here with the wardrobe stories connected to this film. So we talked a little bit about Gene Hackman losing his cool with Wes Anderson. So let's talk about one of the the most Wes Anderson incident of losing your cool. What? Why did he do it? Yeah, why yeah, did he do that, Jordan? It's kind of amazing. I mean, there's stories of Gene Hackman calling Wes Anderson the C word on the set yep. and like just being really awful to him. And yet he kept his cool. But the thing that made Wes Anderson apparently fly off the handle, the only time on the set, concerned Luke Wilson's cuffs. Uh <laughs> Luke Wilson's character, Richie, has got this kind of hippie, shaggy tennis look going on that was inspired by the 70s tennis star Bjorn Borg. But I guess when they were fitting uh, Luke Wilson's character for a suit, they were at, you know, some really high-end New York tailor, up, you know, one of those boxes in the middle of the room, and they were fitting him for this beautiful camel hair suit. And I guess Wes kept raising the level of the cuffs until so they were getting too high for Luke Wilson's taste. And so I guess whenever Wes Anderson would turn around, uh, Luke would motion to the tailor and say, you know, hey, can we get those lowered down a bit? So they kept being this back and forth with the tailor about lowering the cuffs, bringing them back up, lowering the cuffs, bringing them back up. And then I guess Wes finally realized what was happening, yanked Luke Wilson off the thing that he's standing on in the middle of the room in the tailor's office, pull him to the side and goes, this is going to be the level of the cuffs. 
<laughs> and, and I guess, goes, and, they, and, they, and they're talking about this story years later. I think it was for like the 20th anniversary roundtable. And, uh, and Wes said, oh yeah, I do remember that. I feel bad about raising my voice. I don't think there was any, <laughs> I don't think there was any need for it. I think that something to be said for, is the actor comfortable with what you're putting them in? And uh, then the cherry on top of the story is. Oh yeah, Wes was like, oh yeah, we, we framed you above the waist 90% of the time anyway. And no one ever saw the cuff. So it was all... <laughs> He got hot under the collar for literally no reason. But not everything in there was so, uh, I don't want to say frivolous, because I guess that turned out to be a real wedge issue, but not everything in there was solely aesthetic. Ben Stiller asked Wes Anderson at one point, why the tracksuits? Why are my character and his sons dressed in red tracksuits? Anderson replied that because Chaz was so obsessed with the safety of his sons after the death of his wife that wearing red would make everyone easier to see in case of an emergency, which is very poignant and like a great bit of behind the scenes characterization. But then on the DVD audio commentary, he basically just says, I had no real reason for them to be wearing it. I just always imagined three characters in red Adidas track suits. So <laughs> I kind of got the sense that Ben Stiller's character in this movie was basically his character from heavyweights. <laughs> Do you remember? Yeah, I sure do. Like, wasn't he always in like a tracksuit and just kind of yeah. like, all right, ready, go, I gotta go. Then when he like orders Gene Hackman to like, okay, lights out, uh, he kind of reminds me of the character in uh, Happy yep, Gilmore that yep, he played yep, yep. too. It was like the sociopathic nurse. We're moving towards a unified theory of Ben Stiller here. So steering the ship back on track to the uh, production. So we've talked about wardrobe, moving on to the set and setting of the film. Anderson and his assistant, Will Sweeney, were driving around New York with a third guy whose name is George Draculius. And in Life Aquatic, the character that Michael Gambon plays, Osiri Draculius, is a reference to him. Anyway, they're tooling around New York. They're in the Hamilton Heights section of Harlem. And they spot this house at 339 Convent Avenue. You know, it's a cool house. It's got the drum tower. It's just, I mean, if you know, you know. If you don't, stop listening. Uh, don't do that. We sold ads against this. And so Anderson rewrote the film to accommodate this house, but couldn't get in touch with the guy who owned it. They literally just left a note on the door. They couldn't find these guys because it was a, uh, a vacant home. It had been vacant and they weren't living there. They were planning to do extensive renovations on the house. And in one of the great instances of either accidental or just negotiated New York real estate know-how. The guy bought the house after it had been foreclosed and he paid the exact amount that the production wound up paying to use it. So he essentially got a free house out of the Royal Tenenbaums and it's the Royal Tenenbaums house. Although that is probably more of a millstone around his neck these days given the people who want to probably show up and take pictures in front of it. I, I imagine... One of the selling points for the production was that it was pre any kind of big renovation. So sure. they could, I imagine, go in there and do yeah. whatever they wanted to it. I wonder if the owner left it alone. I mean, just, I mean, oh, think yeah. about, I mean, obviously this is 20 years before Airbnb, but I mean, oh my can you God, imagine like mine. if the house was just left the way that it was during the shoot License and like all that crazy money. stuff around? Good Lord. Oh yeah. yeah. It'd be amazing. Um, while we're talking about locations, let's talk about, you know, I think a favor of yours whenever you stay in Manhattan, Jordan, is that right? Oh, yes, of course. The uh, Waldorf Astoria. Actually, I don't think they have hotel rooms anymore. I think their condos now, like like the Plaza and the Chelsea Hotel, all those places are are moving from being hotels to, to condos and stuff. But um, this was apparently Wes Anderson's first film shot out of Texas. And you said earlier, I mean, in addition to, to this being era agnostic, it was also place agnostic, too. I mean, Wes intentionally avoided virtually 
all shots of, of skyscrapers and really distinctive New York landmarks um, because he wanted this to be, in his words, a fairy tale city. There's a scene when Royal and Pagoda are talking in Battery Park, which is way at the southern end of Manhattan. I guess Wes Anderson had the character Pagoda stand directly in front of the Statue of Liberty on purpose, just so it wouldn't show up on the shot, which is something that I guess Gene Hackman was, to use Wes Anderson's word, disturbed by. He thought it was so weird to like block out this incredible, you know, iconic landmark. But Wes Anderson really wanted it to be this kind of strange, dreamy, fairy tale place. In addition to using the uh, house up in the Hamilton Heights section of Harlem, they use the Waldorf Astoria for the hotel shot. What is that? The Lindbergh Hotel? Yeah, is that what yeah, it's yeah, called? yeah. I kept a couple of rooms at the Lindbergh Hotel. Now, the Waldorf Astoria, for those of you who don't know, was a very, very, very upscale hotel. And I guess they didn't really want their ritzy locale sullied with uh, film <laughs> production team. So they only gave him two hours to use the location to shoot, which is why when you look at the overhang where, you know, it says Lindbergh Hotel right out front, it's just covered with fabric. <laughs> like they clearly just put up a little piece of fabric over the, the Waldorf Astoria sign just to cover it up real quickly because they were working on such a tight deadline. Well, the rest of, I mean, as you might expect from filming in that part of Manhattan, somebody's always got to make a stink. That's right. They were filming, you know, again, Manhattan, People with money there maybe not necessarily want, you know, a film crew blocking their home. There's a scene where Gene Hackman's chasing Angelica Houston down the street. It's the, it's the same one where she slaps him, the one where she he tells her that he's dying. There's a moment when he kind of picks up his pace to kind of chase her down. There's a mattress on the street, and the mattress was placed there to block out the home that didn't want to be on camera. Like they just refused. It's a great kind. Of, yeah, yeah. Right, like you yeah. don't want to be on film. We're just going to cover your house with a dirty mattress. Right. <laughs> um, continuing around the setting of not New York, they filmed the tennis scenes at Forest Hills Stadium in Queens. Um, Very, and, very famous tennis stadium. All sorts of iconic matches were there. Don't they? They call it Windswept Fields or something. I think because I says, think so. Yeah. Strange days at Windswept Fields. <laughs> Yeah, and so there's a plaque at Forest Hills Stadium that says, On these hallowed grounds, Richie Tenenbaum played the worst tennis of his life. Long live <laughs> the bomber. <laughs> it's so good. And having said all that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information right after this. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself 
own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day, I get out of bed, drink a health shake I made the night before, and then I go crush a workout in the body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my offer to you. The next 500 people who go to body.com will get 65% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. 65% because I want you to start now and see how fast the pounds come off and the muscles start popping. And if they don't, hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I.com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Smile Actives is a safe and affordable alternative to expensive whitening procedures. You simply add Smile Actives gel to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth, making it the easiest teeth whitening solution out there. In a clinical trial, Smile Actives users reported up to five shades whiter on average, all within seven days. No change to your routine, no extra time. Right now, they are running a buy one, get one offer. Hurry to smileactives.com iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling. Well, from tennis to felonies, Richie has his falcon, Mordecai. The falcon was played by four different birds. I think it's actually a hawk in the long shots of it flying at the end of the movie. For but, our, um, Audubon at- Society listeners. <laughs> But apparently at one point, one of the uh, the Mordecai Falcons flew away and was found by a resident in New Jersey who kept it and tried to get ransom money for it. And I guess in Jersey <laughs> and I guess like the production got cops involved and it took two weeks to get this bird back. And uh, Wes Anderson, I think it was in the um, in the comment director's commentary DVD track. He said this <laughs> is putting an incredible understatement. It's very complicated to fly birds in the city, and it really shouldn't be done. And while we're on the topic of questionable animal practices, let's talk about the Dalmatian mice. And these are the mice, the little polka-dotted mice that the character of Chaz bred as a young boy, which are kind of like a recurring character throughout the film. They're always popping up. They, uh, they're not real. They were just white mice that somebody Sharpie dots onto. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, Wes Anderson later admitted that he, quote, doesn't know the legality of. <laughs> but um, the Royal Tenenbaum still got the no animals were harmed mark by the American Humane Association. So <laughs> it all checks out. So if, any, if, anyone's looking, if anyone's looking for the line that the American Humane Association will draw, it's that you can color mice and still not have harmed animals. <laughs> maybe they didn't know. Maybe, they, maybe we're blowing the whistle on that now years later. I also have no good segue for this one, but now we're just going to talk about Eli, baby. I can imagine him being um, your favorite character. He, is that is that fair? He's so good. It's such a weirdly specific archetype of like literary man obsessed with the American West and like <laughs> doing mescaline and having all these weird celebrity friends, like like the like the guys he's listening to reggae with. It's just. It's so funny and so specific. I love him so dearly. It's such a great character. Um, the painting hanging above his couch when you, in the aforementioned, uh, did you just say you're on mescaline? Indeed I am. Very much so. In that scene, the painting hanging above the couch is by Mexican artist Miguel Calderon, and that actually belongs to Wes Anderson. Can you describe um, that painting? I mean, I, I just saw it last night, and I can't describe that painting. It is... Uh, <laughs> it's pr- It's also... Uh, 
I don't know. Everything about this character is so good. It, it's so in keeping. It's like that kind of like chest beating American Southwest machismo. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah. I mean, this is the one of like the guy being beaten or pulled apart by people in masks. I don't know. I can't believe Wes Anderson has that. That doesn't really seem in keeping in, you know, his whole his aesthetic. Whole yeah. Yeah. But it's not the only audiovisual uh, reference. The Wilson's mother, Laura Wilson, she was actually a close collaborator of Richard Avedon. Very famous photographer for anyone yeah. who's not. And specifically, she worked on his In the American West series. It's a blink and you'll miss it part. It's the photo clipping Eli Cash sends to Ethelene, and where he's holding like a, a snake <laughs> that's been cut in half, like a rattlesnake bare-chested and um that is a reference to a portrait from the avidon series of a young man holding a snake which is apparently like an inside joke for them they have like a recurring family bit between the wilson brothers about this avidon thing so that's a much more culturally highfalutin reference than i would give them credit for but continuing on one of the lines that owen wilson ad-libs is after his stint in rehab where he's doing rope tricks and he says wind's blowing up a gale today that is, I don't even know how we found this fact. The second time he's ad-libbed a line about wind blowing up a gale, he does it in behind en- uh, behind enemy lines. I mean, if, if if you ad-lib a line twice, is that ad-libbing? Oh, yeah. When did behind enemy lines come out? Uh, 2001, same year. So he's probably just shooting them both at the same time and just re- recycled his line. Good for Owen Wilson, but it's a it's the other Wilson brother who has the record for most intense ad lib. It's when uh, he punches the glass. He goes, "Do you want to? Do you want to get the guy?" <laughs> punches the glass in. In um, oh, the guy sleeping with Margot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what should we do? Do you want to get him? Punches the window in. That was improvised. And they, that was improvised. They cut. They, oh, so that must have been real glass. Well, so that's why they do the cut then because they pulling a tight shot on his face because <laughs> Wes Anderson was like, oh, I bet he just like cut his hand open there <laughs> and when it just immediately to keep shooting went to a goes to a tight shot. But he's fine. Another just file in the hand trauma category under the <laughs> yeah. We've really got to get on that Wikipedia of just adding the hand fixation category. <laughs> and while we're talking about Royal Tenenbaums, we have to talk about typefaces. <laughs> <laughs> And that one for all you typeface nerds out there. This one goes out to you. Let's play the hits. Futura. Futura f***ing bold. Um, (laughs) But, you know, it's not just Futura. No, you've also got that filthy, prestigious woman of the night, Helvetica. You can cut all that. You personifying font typefaces. Well, Helvetica's like, didn't they make the documentary about Helvetica? Like, Helvetica is like... I'm not familiar. I think it's Helvetica. Is that just a mescaline trip of yours? I mean, you invented <laughs> you just say lengthy backstory about your favorite font typeface. It's not even my favorite font typeface in the movie. It's my favorite typeface in the movie, now that you mention it, is the one that they use for Ethelene's A Family of Geniuses, which is Milano. So there you have it, Jordan. <laughs> if you're interested in sharing what your favorite uh, typeface is, from Wes Anderson's film, The Royal Tenenbaums, or otherwise, please tweet at the podcast using the hashtag Amadeo Tuturo. 
All right. Well, we burned two minutes about typeface. So uh, <laughs> the iHeart bosses are in their offices right now. Like, wow, Alex and Jordan pitched this as a pop culture show, and now they're fetishizing fonts. Should, should, should we do something? Well, yeah, <laughs> Here we go. Yeah, let's, so now selling let's, ads against typeface. Selling ads against typeface, baby. So now let's move into uh, what they call the trades. What the trades reported on Royal Tenenbaums at the time, Jordan? How did it do critically? How did it do commercially? How did it do in awards season? Well, yeah, I mean, despite its its really strong reputation, it kind of got a lukewarm response. Um, it did better than Rushmore, Wes Anderson's prior movie, but it wasn't a huge smash. I think domestically, it grossed fifty two million on a twenty one million dollar budget. It also didn't clean up during award show season. Uh, it won a, a lone Golden Globe for Gene Hackman, which is kind of hilarious after all that. And I was also nominated for the screenplay. But yeah, I'd like to really focus in on the fact that for all of Gene Hackman's bitching and moaning about wanting to retire, he apparently did a few more films after The Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, His final film role was apparently Welcome to Mooseport, with Ray Romano, and I'm I'm pretty sure that like it wasn't like something that he filmed years earlier, then it came out later. Like I think that was the last movie he like went and made with Ray Romano. The like every, every everybody truly does love Raymond. Maybe he liked the script they wrote for him, the part they wrote for him. He felt they did a better. He felt the writers. <laughs> you of know Welcome me, to Mooseport. Yeah, you guys really know me. I mean, I'm. I have to say, I've never actually seen that movie. I'm just assuming that it's it's a giant steaming pile. I I I really. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. It has a 13 percent Rotten Tomato score. Oh Oof. man. I I mean, Gene, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> That's you have yeah. to edit. You have to edit all that in. Just Gene, <laughs> I buddy, mean, how's he doing? Should we do a news a news result for Gene Hackman? His birthday's coming up. Well, let's dedicate this episode to Gene Hackman and... And his least favorite cinematic experience. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Jordan, the film's bigger legacy might actually be on television. That is absolutely right. So Arrested Development creator Mitchell Hurwitz had been inspired to create a similar sort of Salinger-style ripoff, which is his words, uh, Mm -hmm. about a big family. And he was discouraged when he saw the Royal Tenenbaums because he thought the idea was too similar to what he wanted to do with the rest of development. So he actually shelved the idea for a year. And meanwhile, Alec Baldwin, who narrated the Royal Tenenbaums, said that he based his performance as Jack Donahue on um, 30 Rock on Gene Hackman's performance as Royal which kind of makes sense. The lovable yeah, jerk. Yeah, get that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, the, the really strange part was the narration in the movie almost wasn't used. According to Baldwin, at least, and you got to consider the source here, uh, Baldwin <laughs> said that uh, Wes Anderson approached him, or w- when he was doing the narration, basically said, I don't know why the producers are insisting I have a voiceover. And I'm never going to use it. So don't worry. Just just, just dash it off. Just, you know, don't worry. I'm not even going to use it. Wes Anderson denies that that exchange ever took place. So maybe he was just trying to, like, loosen Alec up. And maybe it was, like, a, sure. a directorial strategy. Or somebody's lying. Because I guess later, years later, at the 20th anniversary roundtable, Alec told this story. And, and Wes said, you know... Alec, your voice is a bigger character as anybody else's. I mean, you're the whole movie. Your voice is just a strong thing. So it remains to be seen whether or not that's actually true. But yeah, that was, um, I guess that really, I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> I was waiting to see if you were going to pick that one out, up. Just punching myself out. <laughs> I got, I got, there's got to be a fact. There's got to be something. Cub me, Mick. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I, I, the only thing, I mean, I already yelled at this. I don't really have anything to add to this. I, I love this movie dearly. Um, there's a quote I, I found here from, uh, Sophie Chahara's review at NME, uh, which is sure it's endlessly quotable, both verbally and visually. Have you seen that color palette? But it's the pain and sweetness at the center of the world, Tenenbaums, that will keep you revisiting this 21st century classic. Well said, person that's not Heigl. <laughs> uh, Jordan, do you have anything? Uh, no. Hell yeah. Well, Royal Tenenbaums, baby. I don't know what else. That's We're going out. We're going out gracelessly. It's punching ourselves out of thin air. I mean, yeah, I wish we had some kind of like incredible Wes Anderson needle drop to uh, to end this episode on. Oh, well, to, to cleanse, listeners, to cleanse your speakers of the, this hour of twee, we're going to broadcast the sound of monster trucks. <laughs> I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. Thank you so much for listening to Too Much Information. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Smile Actives is a safe and affordable alternative to expensive whitening procedures. You simply add Smile Actives gel to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth, making it the easiest teeth whitening solution out there. In a clinical trial, Smile Actives users reported up to five shades whiter on average, all within seven days. No change to your routine, no extra time. Right now, they are running a buy one, get one offer. Hurry to smileactives.com slash iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling.